listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. You son of a bitch. You moved the cemetery, but you left the bodies, didn't you? You son of a bitch, you left the bodies and you only moved the headstones. You only moved the headstones. Why? Why? It was it was cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly the answer. But in his distraught past nightmare for how long does that movie take place? Like three days? I think the why wasn't it was more rhetorical than Okay, we're not going to talk about a way better movie than what we're going to talk about. Oh, couldn't we? <laughs> I was just quoting 1982's Poltergeist, uh, Craig T. Nelson's character, Steve. Uh, I think I brought a little bit too much intensity, though. Not enough nuance to his... Because I think he's really grieving in that scene, not just so much angry. Well, he's a bit pissed. His house is like two <laughs> seconds away from imploding. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. The house killed itself rather than live with the Simpsons. Today we're going to talk about Apple Plus. Four episode, one hour each. Uh, Not quite a mockumentary, more of a documentary with uh, reenactors. The Einfeld Poltergeist. That might sound familiar to uh, our Conjurverse fanatic fans out there. It sounds familiar to the Enfield Poltergeist. (laughs) Was that a film with that title? No, it's it's how you pronounce the actual. Oh, how did I how did I say it? Einfeld. Einfeld. So this series, you know, it's the typical situation in these types of documentaries before technology ruined ghost hunters. We have this poor family, the Hogsons. Am I saying that all wrong? Hogsons. Uh, Hogsons. They're haunted, especially the daughter, Janet, and a paranormal investigator named Maurice Gross. Maurice Gross feels that this isn't just important to research, but it could possibly be the most important discovery of all mankind on the level of sliced bread and fire. So for four episodes, we get uh, some really good talking heads, I felt. Uh, Some very interesting choices in reenactments from (laughs) based on these real recordings that he took from the house. And even real, I should probably put in quotation marks. Well, they were real in that they were were not listening to actors. That's the thing. When you say that we're watching reenactors... We're literally watching reenactors lip sync to the original tape recordings, of which I think there must be several hundred hours. And we're getting probably like the tip of the iceberg of them. So with me to go through this, he's from the Nighthawks podcast. 
And a good friend of mine, I'd like to say, Matt Foster is with us. Hello. And we have someone who's really helped me out a lot as a film watcher to set aside all my cynical skepticism and enjoy a film. How can I put this? Enjoy the world that exists within the confines of the story that's being told. There we go. Melina is with us. Oh, thank you, Brad. This was such the wrong uh, review to give me that intro, though, because I am about to rip this one a new one in terms of how I feel about it. Well, this, like I was talking with Matt earlier, this isn't necessarily a film series or even like a TV special. It's, as you pointed out, uh, recordings of an investigation of an alleged poltergeist in a house in the 70s that reenactors are lip syncing to and uh, there's very mixed results to that what it really reminded me of is a uh, an extended episode of unsolved mysteries yeah yeah paired with drunk history except you don't have the fun of the wasted comedians giving you the story now me personally i feel that eventually Around episode three, this starts to level out into a fair and non-forced narrative. But those first two episodes are very much, there is a ghost here. And if you're going to question it, then stop watching. You're a jerk. You're a skeptic. You're rude. Don't watch. There is a ghost. And that I thought was annoying. But by the end of this, when we get more people involved that have more of a, a skepticism... Like there's this beautiful quote that says, if you want to be a paranormal investigator, you should lead by being a skeptic. You should try to disprove everything. Maurice, I felt the slightest noise, a cat outside, a child walking around. He'd be like, nope, 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 nope. That's a ghost. That's proof of ghost, everyone. Gather around. We we are witnessing history. And it's like, Maurice, calm down. It, yeah. It's just a house. It's three in the morning. Get out of my room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But enough of my rambling. What did you all think of this and how it's presented? I thought that you've you've hit on, I think, the flaw of the piece, which is that the interesting thing here is this, like, society of, like, would-be Victorian Renaissance men that think they're doing scientifically valid things, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they're, they're all such interesting. Like, and the 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 second guy I, I was it was too bad he wasn't more focal because his name is guy fair play right <laughs> so british um i was expecting him to just start vomiting beans and toast at any time he was so british <laughs> but um uh it's interesting to me because i don't think maurice faked anything in his mind yeah, I think he was dead set sure that all of this was actually happening. And I do think that he had a very peculiar relationship with these people because they were proper. And I don't think he was in any way interested in the mother. There was no dynamic like that. Um, And they were also very British about everything. But he was also evidently actually kind of invested in them. And, and they were they were more than a hobby. I think they were like a like a deflective pursuit for him, you know. And and Almost it's a obsession. And it's very like um I think it was an if, if my actual opinion about the Enfield haunting is I don't think that Janet faked it either entirely. I think it was a 
an auto-hypnotic thing like speaking in tongues or those those kung fu studios where the master can knock everybody out with a touch but it doesn't work on anybody that doesn't take that style of kung fu right um, you know they've they've put the paddles on those guys and they're really out they've but they've they've hypnotized themselves basically into 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 going to sleep when master snaps his fingers right and i think this was this kind of thing was these these kids were getting attention and they were kind of dining out on it and it was novel and fun it all then adults got carried away and the kids probably didn't know what to do you know and i don't think either kid has ever come out and admitted said well we we i i did a gravelly voice you know the value this did have for me was hearing the clips from the original tapes themselves uh, compared to like the movie versions where like you can tell like yeah that's a weird voice but it's clearly like a voice that a person could make it sounds like a 12 year old kid putting on a demon voice you know um what didn't work for me was the ratio of reproduction to real footage to real audio to actor audio i thought it was kind of unclear where stuff left off and picked up I would rather have seen it be more reenacted or more talking head. They didn't quite find a balance that worked for me. And I really thought the first two, it was stretched unnecessarily. The first two episodes were just very dry. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's interesting that you both have kind of put forward two of the, I think you put forward one of the, my favorite things about this and my least favorite thing about this. Uh, What you were saying, Matt, your theory as to, what Maurice's um, or Morris's ultimate motive behind his actions may or may not have been. I think I, at the end of this, fell right into that same mindset that you did. Where, and I think that I can compliment this docu-series on creating a narrative that stays very fair and very objective. And ultimately lets you, the audience, decide how you feel about this when you walk away from it. Like, we are just explaining this in the most journalistic and non-biased way that we possibly can, but we are putting out just enough perspectives to where you can decide whether or not you think that these investigators, primarily Morris and Fairplay, truly believed in everything that they purported to be doing. Uh, whether Janet and her sister and family knew what they were doing or if they were in fact haunted in some way or another, whether that was by ghosts, grief, or just being a very dysfunctional and uh, financially disabled family. Or did Maurice and his partners come in and basically knowingly exploit these people, hoping to make a name for themselves and hoping to confirm their own beliefs while making a buck, whether or not these people were hurt. I think that there are many arguments that you could have about that. There are many discussions to be had about that. The series does not purport to have a definitive answer. I really appreciated that about it. And I think my other favorite thing was I I thought that they did a great job with the reenactors that they chose and the set design I thought was pretty uh, was pretty uh, phenomenal. 
especially because they bring in a lot of the talking heads and reenactors to the set that they built, which is a complete replica of the original Enfield house. And all of them were like, wow, this takes me right back. Like, this puts me right back to where I was. I wished that I could say that I liked anything more than that. But what you were saying, Brad, about the pacing, I think is this whole series' biggest problem. Mm-hmm. This really is dry as toast. <laughs> A British toast. Yeah, without the fish and chips. If there, if there is a food, we'll give credit to the British for it. It's toast. Yeah. <laughs> what I did enjoy about this is I think it accidentally, and to use a term you just taught me moments ago, gives up the ghost. <laughs> when this demon, uh, sorry, poltergeist, speaking through this child, starts asking questions that a curious 12-year-old girl would ask. And questions that an evil old pervert would definitely not ask. Yeah, exactly. And God bless these poltergeist investigators, these paranormal doctors. They start talking to her as if she is this demon, wondering why he wants to know. And we go to a talking head. And I forgot her name, and so my apologies for that. But she explains over... This moment, like, if these men knew anything about basic child psychology, they would know how to actually help this child and not enable this ghost behavior that is going on. And I'm and I just felt like, wow, that's spot on. Yeah, I mean, that is the thing. I think that one of the more interesting uh, roads this series goes down in the latter half of it is alluding to the idea that there may be, in fact, a lot of dysfunction and trauma going on in this family. You've got the single mom, the father who walked out. You've got the younger daughter who is kind of going through a lot of changes right now, but it's being kind of suppressed due to her being the unwitting, uh, basically like being the unwitting epicenter, as they keep referring to her of not just this quote-unquote haunting, but a media sensation. You know, she's become famous really through no effort or fault of her own. And in the meantime, she's just trying to grow up. She's just trying to get some sleep at night. She's just trying to figure out who she is. And you've got this guy coming in saying, yeah, you're possessed by this person and constantly feeding you that. How are you supposed to grow up with a healthy mindset? And I love that it actually really does delve into the effect that that had on her, not just immediately, but over the course of her entire life. That was one of the surprising things to me, was that they actually got the real Janet Hodgson to come in as a talking head. Yeah, they they interviewed both sisters, and what what it really struck me as most resembling, rather than like outright fraud or outright phenomenon, is it really reminded me of snake handling, like a revival-type phenomenon, where they were they were all sort of knowingly participating in something where no one was going to call BS. And like the, the, the fascinating person was, what was her name? Anne Gottlieb, the one, the, the older woman from the parapsychical association that was an actual, like actual trained scientist that came in and was like, Anita Gregory. Yeah. Anita Gregory. Where's Anne Gottlieb's an author, but (laughs) but, um, (laughs) it's like, I know that name, but I don't think it's from here. (laughs) Um, 
yeah, uh, Anita Gregory came in and she immediately started doing things that were very like, um, or and suggesting things that they, and one of them they did, which was have her try to, you know, communicate with Bill with water in her mouth. And it didn't work, you know, she couldn't, um, she had to spit out the water to get Bill to talk, you know. And of course, then they, then they adjust their standards. Well, Bill's physically making her talk like she is physically doing the talking but but it's it's at his behest with she's he's putting the words in her mouth you know which um begs the question of why isn't a normal medium situation why does he why does she have to talk like him and you might be able to tell me melina it sounds like you've um you know looked into it independently quite a bit um i have a little bit but uh the other big plot hole to me is that um they're only like if bill died in a chair in the basement right um one would think that like that plot hole would be investigated that they would and and they did find the guy right they did yeah i think they interviewed his son for this and so it's like well it was treated as sort of miraculous revelation that she knew about it. Well, all, all it would take is a neighbor kid because it was 15 years before they moved in. Oh, so, yeah, exactly. So it's just kind of old, old man such and such died in that house, don't you? You live in the haunted house, you know, and boom, you're off. Yeah, I, I could see that being a plot hole in that the documentarians could have actually speculated as to whether or not Maurice actually went and found these records, which would be public. That is something that you could find out. Janet could have gone and figured that out, or her mother could have. Uh, especially the fact that she's the renter of the house. This is information that would be out there. It's just that Maurice, uh, later on in the series, alleges, or he asserts, that they did not know that at the time. And that Janet did not know that at the time. It was a council house. So the the last, right. the last resident, I mean, being a retiree... Um, who lived there until his death and and that being somewhat public record are both very plausible it's not exactly that's what i'm saying it's like maurice says that they did not have access to that information and that and that they didn't know that i was kind of hoping that the documentary would maybe not exactly try to debunk him but they could have been they could have gone to someone like anita gregory who i believe uh at the time said that very thing she was like no you absolutely could have gone and found this out like that is something that you could just be you could have fed to this girl whether she knew what she was hearing or not uh you could have just fed it to the mother and the daughter could have heard it offhand there's many many explanations as to why she knew the you know how she could have possibly known the details it's just something that the documentary i guess chooses not to investigate well, and one thing I thought that they did kind of gloss was that she was out and out caught a few times synthesizing things. Like she yeah. was, she was at one point caught, like I, one of the sisters was banging on the floor while the other one was doing the mediumship. And then the, uh, and then another time they were caught pre when, uh, and they show this great, this great vintage footage of Yuri Geller in this, like coming on the psychic scene in the, in, and, uh, how he introduced spoon bending as like a trope and they tried to get, they tried to get bill to bend spoons. And one thing Janet was caught doing was pre bending spoons. And they do touch on this because there's a moment where gross gets kind of tough with Janet and says like, 
and says like, if you staged anything, I need to know what you staged, what percentage of it, which incidents were real and which ones weren't staged, which of course he's begging the question that some of it's still real. Oh yeah. Right. And like you pointed out, cause he wants to believe so bad that this life's work has purpose. And I think that's fine. I'm, I'm not calling him out for wanting that. I hope my life's purpose has value as well. That's a very human thing. Well, and then, then the other thing that like, um, and this was, sort of shown in one of the conjuring movies in a weird abbreviated form yeah. is when it, anita gregory suggested it was ventriloquism like it was ventriloquism style stuff yes. someone went and brought in a popular ventriloquist in england who came out and they show this in the documentary but in i believe in the movie he leaves all scared and rattled and in in, in this <laughs> in this he was alone with her for like five minutes he came out and he's like yeah she's she's faking it yeah, he's, he's like, there's nothing <laughs> oh yeah yeah, yeah they it, it is one of those things where i kind of i know that the documentary was not trying to just flat out come out and say one way or it wasn't trying to come out and say definitively that this was all just a big hoax that uh morris and his partners were just a bunch of scam artists they're not they're not deciding that at least that's not their obvious mission statement. But I did think that this could have been helped if they had discussed a lot of what you were just saying, like a lot of episodes like that, them bringing in professional, well-known ventriloquists and magicians who kind of took one look at this whole thing, the way she was talking, the way that she was doing the voices, and the... And look, they all just were like, no, it's all smoke. This is all smoke and mirrors. It's all bells and whistles. There's nothing real to this. There's like a kind of like Gross would refer to it. There's a picture of her that Gross refers to as her levitating. And you hear levitating and you think light as a feather, stiff as a board, like floating above the bed. Sure. Like yeah. um, like in Ghostbusters, you're three feet above the covers, man. But then they show the actual picture and she's horizontal in the air. Like she jumped out of bed really fast. Oh, yeah, and motion activated cat. Yeah. I was Cap, I was bummed out about it. It, that photo. You know, so many things shown as proof made me more skeptical. That was and, uh, yeah. <laughs> that was something that annoyed me too because they also brought that up in the Conjuring too. They look at the picture of her, the famous picture of her, quote unquote, levitating, and it's Ed Warren's character, or it's a uh, Patrick Wilson's character, Ed Warren, who says it does look like she's just jumping. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. the Conjuring too does show the infamous video footage of her faking an incident where she's bending the spoons and she's throwing things across the room to make it look like the ghost has done it itself. So many things that The Conjuring 2, which is a heavily fictionalized version of this story, goes into a lot of the... Uh, goes into much more of the attempts at debunking the ghost mm -hmm. theory than I think this does. And some very obvious examples, like the ones we just mentioned. I'm like, were they afraid to introduce those? I think uh, in the spirit of charity, my assumption is that this documentarian, uh, this crew started to work and realized that the interesting story here is the social phenomenon and that they probably thought cutting from the guy's exaggerated uh, description of the levitation is definitive proof. And then they just visually cut to the picture and draw your own conclusions. Most people are going to go, oh, the kid jumped. You know, I think they thought they'd done enough. Well, let's carry that into 
Our final thoughts, uh, Matt Foster, if you continue, please. Uh, my final thoughts are, other than including a bit more of the real tape that I hadn't heard before, uh, this is a pretty inessential treatment of this, and there are many, many documentary treatments, you know, whether they're episodes of shows or uh, fictionalized movies or other documentaries, there's many treatments of the infield haunting. And so, like, unless you're a diehard, you know, ghost show completionist, I I can't tell people to seek this out. I guess I would give it a... Uh, um. I'd give it a, a six out of ten bent spoons. Very nice. Uh, Melina. Uh, well, I think that we have talked so much about what this documentary does bring up, and I do throw it a lot of props for that. I just wish that the documentary itself had been more interesting with the way it discussed a lot of it. So much of what makes this interesting to me is just the subject itself. And yeah, you're right. I have looked at this independently because things like this are just kind of fascinating to me. I am a very uh, out, you know, out and proud skeptic. But I look at skepticism in a very positive light, which is the way that the one physics uh, talk, the one physics professor who's a, a prominent talking head in this uh, describes it, which is it's the complete opposite of being a closed-minded investigator. It is looking for every possible explanation and always being open to things that you don't understand. When I watched this, I thought, this is completely, is inefficient. I think that was the perfect word, Matt. It's not particularly interesting with the way that it portrays the narrative. It's just... It's flat out dry at points. I think that this could have been maybe three hour long episodes if you would condense the first two. I think you easily could have done that. Maybe even two hour and 20 plus would have made this just fine. I don't know if it would have made it more interesting, but it certainly would have made it tighter. Uh, I do commend the reenactors that they brought in. And I thought that the set design was quite impressive. And I do appreciate that they brought in Margaret and Janet Hodgson to give their testimonies. And you do find yourself very sympathetic to them. You know, you were like, yeah, these were, for all intents and purposes, just young kids who were going through something that they didn't understand. Whatever that is, is up to you, the viewer. I will say that, yeah, whatever point of view you have on the supernatural, the preternatural, how you feel about the Enfield poltergeist... Your mind will not be changed by this. But I do appreciate that it had the guts to stay objective, which is a very hard thing for a documentary to do. So I give this, um, I give this six and a half out of ten Cockney accents. All right, very nice. Uh, for me, I'm very skeptic. I've always been pretty skeptic since I was a little boy. I've done two successful cold readings and then I just gave that up completely because I felt ashamed. And I didn't feel ashamed for lying to people. I felt ashamed for going along with the lie because it made me feel powerful. So I thought, well, we're done doing that. This documentary and his tapes expose so much of wanting to believe something so badly. 
any time he would say, how could the children do that? Children don't do that. Uh, as a father, yeah, they do. A recommendation for an art film that I really loved. It's called The Hunt, starring Mads Mikkelsen. Oh, I love that movie. That's a really good example of, but do children just go along with lies? <laughs> do adults? Yeah. I don't know. Ask the West Memphis Three. um like melina said i didn't get persuaded one way or the other at the end of this it was just kind of like now that is something that i saw so i'm just gonna give it five out of ten silly voices that a child would think a demon sounded like i guess (laughs) could a child make a silly voice like that yes yes all the time unprovoked children make silly voices what are you talking about? I did love the whole, oh, are they saying that she's the va- like she's the greatest ventriloquist of all time? That's absurd. I'm like, she could be the worst ventriloquist of all time. We wouldn't know because it's all audio. There's not a single amount of video footage to any of this. Well, um, the other thing I'd like to point out is that The Exorcist came out in 73, and this stuff all happened in 79. Now, it was pre-streaming, so, like... You'd have to ask the mother if she ever let her kids watch The Exorcist, but but her voice is very similar to, you know, the one used in The Exorcist. Oh, Pazuzu's voice, yeah. <laughs> oh, I ain't in an excellent day for an exorcism. <laughs>